So last week we last week we saw in the book of Philippians, or we actually spent most of our time last week in the book of Acts to see how the church in Philippi was founded, and it was a neat story. It's amazing that this church was founded in victory. Paul goes out to the riverside where people were out there praying, preaches the gospel, and immediately Lydia and her whole family get saved. And the moment they came to Christ, they were like, hey, come stay with us. Let's support you. Let, let us serve you. And then Paul, in the middle of traumatic experience where he's jailed for casting a demon out of a little girl, he's in the jail and an earthquake comes, his bonds are loosed, and he catches the jailer about to commit suicide. And so Paul shares the gospel with him. And immediately this guy gets saved. And so you have this church born out of victory. You have this church that from that time forward has been a close supporter of Paul. They financially support him. They've sent him money through Epaphroditus. They have supported him prayerfully. They've supported him in ministry. They truly love him. If you think in your mind back, I'm sure you can think of someone in your, your heart or your memory that you looked up to, that represented the gospel well to you and your family, who you look at as an example, who you love, maybe somebody that you do financially support. You send them some support. You know who they are. You know what's going on. I think as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Kika. I remember back, goodness, 15 years ago when I first met Kika, and he and I were, were riding back and forth through email, and he sent me an email one time that he was so excited because he had gone to this village to, to preach the gospel in, in, uh, to a group of Tibetans, and they had beaten him up and thought they had killed him and threw him outside of the, the village thinking that they had killed him. And he was so excited because he's like, it's like I'm living in the book of Acts. I got to get beaten for Jesus. And so he had this glamour of, oh my gosh, this guy's a super Christian. And then I went and spent two weeks with him. And by the time it was over, I'm looking at him going, I'm really looking forward to missing you, brother. Because you know what? People are people. But my love and admiration for Kika never slowed down. I know that put in certain circumstances, I know exactly what Kika's going to do. He's somebody that I, I look up to. He's somebody that I've financially provided for. He's, he's somebody that, that I've, I've asked other people to survive. So I, I know what situation they're in, and they find out this church who loves Paul, who, who longs for him, has found out that he's in jail. He's in prison. Now, most Pauline letters kind of had the same form. And this one is not an exception. Where it starts out with an introduction. Hey, this is me, Paul, and I'm writing with Timothy. And we're writing to you, the saints in Philippi, and everybody else who's there, the deacons and the elders. And then he launches into a prayer. He does the same thing in Philippians. He does the same thing in Romans. He launches into a prayer. And this should remind us that one of the most powerful gifts we can give someone is to pray for them. We often act like that's a disappointing thing, like, well, you know, I know you're going to be in the hospital in Birmingham. I can't really because of some other things. I can't go, so we'll pray for you. If that's all we can do. I've heard the story of the deacons meeting where the church was in financial issues, and the, the deacons said, well, I guess we just need to pray about it. And somebody, one of the other deacons muttered, has it really come to that? Has it gotten to that point? But Paul, as he's writing these letters to people, feels like prayer is the most important, most valuable thing they can do. 
John Wesley, the founder of Methodist, uh, the Methodist Church and Methodism, um, was a had a, a ministry where he would on horseback ride out and disciple people. And as he got older and later in his life, he realized that he just didn't have it in him anymore to be on the on the trail all the time. And so he decided that what he would do is people who he had been riding out on horseback visiting once a week, he instead would visit them once a month. And the time that he had been spending on horseback and with them, he would spend that time in specific set-aside prayer for that individual. And so the people who were closer to him, he continued to meet with them once a week. And John Wesley kept copious notes of everything that he did, and he began soon realizing that the people he was only seeing once a month, but he was spending hours in prayer for, were growing much closer to God than the people he was spending every day with, or once a week with. And he wrote, he said, Oh, that I had realized this when I was younger. It would have revolutionized my ministry. That if I had known the power of getting on my knees and calling out to God for someone, how important that is and how impactful that is. We don't believe in prayer. We say we do, and we play lip service to it. But we as American Westerners don't know how to pray. And so we should look to Paul's example here. Here he is in jail. He can't go to the church in Philippi. He can't physically be there. But he does cry out for them in prayer. He spends time for them in prayer. If you're in any kind of ministry role, if you're working with little kids, if you're working with ladies, if you're working with with old people, I implore you, I beg you, let's follow Paul's example and spend time praying for those people. So Paul... Writes his letter, he opens up with prayer, and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul loves these people. This church was born out of power. From the moment that he started preaching by the riverside, from the moment that he, he, he shared the gospel with the Philippian jailer, every time Paul preaches the gospel, it comes in power, and people get saved. People turn to Christ. He loves them. This is his home base. As we study this letter for the next few weeks, I want you to... <laughs> next few months? I want you to realize how much he cares for these people. And sometimes he's going to say some things that aren't easy to say. But you know what? That's the nature of love. Sometimes the most loving thing to say is not, they're there, it's going to be okay. If I am going to the doctor and they've done a CT scan and they found a mass, I don't want the doctor to say, you know what, it's going to be all right. No, I want him to tell me the truth so that we can attack the issue. And so sometimes Paul does that. But I want you to understand how this letter more than any other of the Pauline epistles, just drips with his love for these people. He says later in the prayer, my God, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's clear to me that this was Paul's home base. These were the people who he loved. This was the place he wanted to be. This was the place that he wanted to go. These were people that he loved. He goes on and say, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace. 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul recognizes that they are scared to death. I mean, if someone that you knew or loved went to jail, you would naturally be afraid for them, right? It would be understood that that's a scary place to be. That's not some place that any of us want to go spend time. I will say even in ministry whenever I've gone to jail, that sound of that heavy door clicking behind you is a pretty intimidating sound. It's probably it's not a sentence uttered a whole lot by pastors, but the times that I've gone to jail, there's a really intimidating feeling about that big door. And so here Paul is hanging off, and I've been told by the guys that worked on the stage to be careful with the chain. Here is Paul chained to a Roman guard writing this letter. And these people who love him, who look up to him, who appreciate him, who are financially supporting him, are scared to death. And here is Paul comforting them and saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. It reminds me, there was a, a guy that I, I actually came to me because I was doing some PTS, uh, counseling with, PS, PTSD counseling with him. And he, uh, one of the things that stuck in his head that he could not get away from was he was a Marine and he was serving in Afghanistan. And he was telling me the story about a, a friend of his who had stepped on a, a, a IED. And, yes, that's correct. I, th- I thought I'd messed up there for a minute. <clears throat> um, because the last time I said IED, I said IUD, and everybody was like, what? What is he talking about? So uh, he had stepped on an IED, an improvised explosive device. Yes, and it had blown this guy's legs off. And so they were carrying him to a medevac, and he was freaking out, and his friend leans over and pats him on the shoulder and says, dude, I need you to calm down. you got to get me to the helicopter without killing me. It's going to be okay. And the fact that his friend, who just had his legs blown out, was comforting him and telling him to calm down, just stuck in his head. And that's exactly what we have going on with Paul. Here's Paul in jail, and yet in his letter he's saying, hey, I know that you're worried about me, you're my partners in ministry, you're my partners in in all of this, and it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. He recognizes that they know that the jail he's in On the whim of Caesar, he could lose his head. He is not in a situation where there has to be a trial, where there has to be documentation. If Caesar gets up one day and has a bad day and looks at his calendar and says, you know, I don't really want to fool with this, so take all these guys that I'm supposed to be with, kill them, it would be okay. There is nobody to question that decision. These guys have to recognize if persecution is coming against the gospel and they've laid claim to the name of Christ, they might be next. And so they're scared. They're afraid. And there's a chain there. And Paul recognizes it. I want you to know, my brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that it's awesome that I'm in jail because all the prison guards have gotten saved. In fact, at the end of the letter, as he's writing to them, because remember one of the guys who's in in the Philippian church is a jailer, 
and that we, we, we learned that Philippi was a city that was, for all practical purposes, a retirement town for the military. At the end of this letter, he says, the Praetorian Guard in Rome sends its greetings. Paul literally recognized that no matter what happened to him in this, this life, God had put him there so that he could proclaim the power of Jesus. He's in jail, shuffling along in his orange pajamas, and he's leading the guards to Jesus. Oh, that we could understand that. In Sunday school, we were just talking about how, what Romans 8.28 actually means and the impact and the power of the fact that the Bible tells us that everything that comes into our life, God is going to work through it for our good and His glory. If we changed our perspective and realized that if the washing machine breaks, it's not because God is trying to punish us, but maybe He wants that person who's going to sell you the belt at Sears to hear about Jesus. Maybe the reason why something's coming into your life is because God cares more about that person who you're going to be rubbing shoulders with in the hospital. He cares more about their soul than he does about your happiness. And so Paul here recognized that and tells these believers, hey, I know you're afraid, but look at what God is doing with this. Paul is in jail. He's lost his freedom. He's lost all of his stuff. He's got nothing except the clothes on his back. Literally, the Philippian church has just sent some money so he can eat. And he's saying, hey, God's got this. I want some of that. I want to know how he had that perspective change. And I think if we look closely at this prayer, we'll see. So I guess... I'm saying all that to say that all this has been introduction up to now. So I hope you put the crock pot on low. I'm just saying. In fact, Father God, Lord, I pray that as we look at the latter part of this prayer, God, you would open our eyes to this truth that your word screams so that we can live lives that are unfettered by what goes on in this world. God, it seems to me in my own life, it seems like my happiness and my joy is entirely based on my circumstances. If I have a good day, I'm happy. If I have a bad day, I'm in a grumpy mood. Oh, God, forgive me for my short-sightedness. God, forgive me for my earthliness. God, I pray that you shift my perspective, that you help me see this life from your view. And God, I pray that you help me live a life focused on eternity. God, I pray that in this congregation you would show us that this world is not our home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul goes on to say, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This prayer, at its heart, is eschatological. Now what that means is, is its focus is not on today. It's not even on this world. You see, if I'm chained up in a room, or I'm like prisoner 42 that we read her story, 
and I'm singing, either I'm not thinking about my circumstances at that moment, or I'm a madman, one or the other. And so this prayer that Paul prays is at its heart not focused on what's going on today. As I said in my prayer, so often our happiness or sadness, our upsetness or excitement is all based on what's happening to me today. If I've had a good day today, I'm in a good mood. If I have one of those kind of days where you, you get up in the morning and you try to crank the car and it won't crank and you have to jump start the car and then you get to work and your boss has left a note on your desk that says, I need to talk to you, which those are never good meetings. We know that. In fact, I, I was leaving here last Sunday and I got a text from the chairman of the deacons that said, hey, give me a call. And I looked at it for a long pregnant time and said, something ain't right. Now, when I called him, he did say, I sent you that text like three days ago. So I was like, whew, whew. So um, that's a good thing. But uh, when we have a bad day, it has, a, has an impact on us. Typically, when people come to me and they say, I need to talk to you about something, it's because there's been some news that's not good. We look at Romans 8, 28 that says, All things work together for the good to them who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we think that what that means is, is that God has promised us that it's all going to work out the way we want it to. That I'm going to end up with a new truck and a pony. The test is going to come back negative. Everything's going to be okay. But that's not reality, right? Sometimes... The doctor calls and says, I'm sorry, I've got some terrible news. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray, and then the person dies. Sometimes when that phone rings at midnight and you look at the phone and go, oh God, no, oh God, no. And when you answer the phone, the voice on the other line says, this is Sergeant so-and-so. Your child has been in a wreck. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way that we want it to. Does that mean that God's a liar in Romans 8, 28? Does that mean that it's not gonna, that God doesn't know what he's talking about? Yesterday, I, I did a funeral for uh, the homes. Uh, David's father passed away. And I, I um, always, whenever I'm doing a funeral, the, whatever time they say, tell the family to get there, I usually try to get there about 10 minutes beforehand so that I can be, uh, in the room when the family walks in and sees the body for the first time because it's very traumatic and, and they need to have somebody there that can love on them. And so I, all the funeral homes here in town, I've been in a thousand times. It's just part of the nature of the job. And so I always park at the back because I don't want to take up the parking at the front. I always park at the back and walk in to the back door by the hearses. It's what I've always done. It's just the way it keeps me out, out, of, out of everybody's way. So I did that. I show up at Collier Butler. I walk in the, the back door. And I, I don't need anybody to tell me where to go. I know where to go. I've been in there a thousand times. So I go bebopping in and I, I walk into, through the chapel. And as I walk past the pulpit in the chapel, there's a bunch of stuff piled up on the pulpit. And I'm like, oh, God. I didn't clean up after the last funeral. So I take everything off the pulpit and stuff it underneath. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish they'd clean up after themselves. And then I walk into the, the chapel and there's a casket there and there's people standing around. And I'm looking around and I recognize some of the people because, uh, you know, but, but I don't see the homes anywhere. 
And uh, so I say hey to some people that I recognize, and, and I'm, I'm just sitting there looking around, and I, this just doesn't seem something's off. And somebody comes up to me and says, and who are you again? And I said, I'm Pastor Tom, North Lane Cove Baptist Church. Oh, we're so glad that you came here today. And I'm, th- I'm starting alarm bells starting to go off. That this, they, they should, whoever is here, they should know who I am. And so I'm kind of easing as I'm working my way through this group of people. I'm getting closer and closer, and I look over at the casket, and that ain't my dead guy. I'm in the wrong funeral. And so you can't just go, so sorry, I'm out. So you kind of have to work your way out. And then I, I go to the correct parlor and, and where the home is supposed to be. And, but the whole thing was off because I was in the wrong place. I was missing the point of what was going on there. The lady who had passed away was actually a longtime Glencoe resident. She had been a teacher in Glencoe. And that's why I was recognizing people. But I was at the wrong funeral. No matter how hard I tried to make that work, it wasn't going to work. There was another preacher who was expecting to be there. It was all his stuff that was on the pulpit that I had stuffed underneath. (laughs) He's probably looking for it right now, going, where's my notes? (laughs) So no matter how hard I tried to twist things and stuff things and move things around, it wasn't going to work. I was in the wrong place and I had the wrong situation altogether. I think as Christians, what we try to do is take the words of the Bible and stuff them into our lives. Jam them here, jam them there, so that we can live the life that we want to live the way everybody else does, so that we're comfortable in this world that we live in, and everything is A-OK, and then we've got some Jesus stuff stuffed around just in case we need it. And it doesn't work. It falls apart. Because that's not at all the way the Bible says things. In fact, Romans chapter 6 says that what we're supposed to do is die to what we want, what we desire. And the Bible talks over and over and over and again and again and again about the idea that this world that we live in is not our home. We shouldn't feel comfortable in this world. It should feel strange and unusual. And so as Paul is praying for this church that he loves desperately and is hurting deeply, he doesn't do that from a position of, they're there, it's all going to work out. Because he knows good and well, it might not. And so he comforts them from a position of, your hope is not in this world. We are foreigners. We are strangers. We are supposed to be weirdos that don't fit in. This world ain't our home. I heard the story about a missionary who was coming home from the mission field. And he had been faithfully serving on the mission field for 20 years. And he and his wife were on the plane. And the flight that they were taking happened to have some U.S. servicemen on the plane. And so they sit down on the plane and they announce that, hey, uh, Delta Airlines would like to announce that we have these three men who have served our country in uh, Afghanistan. And so we're moving them to first class. And everybody in the plane stood up and clapped and cheered them on and said, thank you for your service. And the guys went up and sat down on the, in the front seat. And they landed. And as they, they, they land, they're getting off the, the, the walkway up toward the the 
hangar, and as they come out, there's a huge group of people that are clapping and cheering, and the uh, O-S-U-M-A, um, the OSA is there, and they've got banners, and they've got American flags, and they've got balloons, and they're cheering them on and singing the Star Spangled Banner and celebrating. And as they're walking along, this wife, who knew her husband well, said, what's the matter with you? Nothing. I'm fine. And then they got out past the, the check-in, and they go to, to baggage, and these guys' families are there, and there's people hooting and hollering, and people running across the airport, jumping into people's arms, and you're home, and you're safe, and it's a great celebration. And the, the husband still has his head down, and the wife says, what is the matter? And he said, you know what? We've faithfully been serving for 20 years, and nobody cares. And she looked at him and said, honey, I love you, but you ain't home. We are not fighting for this world. Our home is someplace else. We can't expect the crowds to cheer us on. They don't like us. We can't expect the world to celebrate us. They're going to fight against everything we believe in. In popular television, they're going to portray people with Bibles as weirdos and whack jobs. In movies, the serial killer is going to be quoting Bible verses. This world doesn't like you or want you. And we have an enemy that's going to fight you at every turn and every opportunity. Every time he sees you with joy, he's going to try to kick you in the teeth. We fight an enemy not of flesh and blood, but of principalities and powers. We fight an enemy that is too great for us. We can't stand against him. This world is not our home. But Paul says, in this next life, in this other place, in this other home, there is peace and there is hope. He says, so be pure and blameless. Why? For the day of Christ. We don't live for this world. We are fighting. We are living we are doing everything in our power to take as many people with us to that next world. And so we are never going to find our joy if we're trying to live our lives now and stuff some Jesus around it. When we realize that this world is not our home and that God is doing a work in us that will have an eternal reward, then that changes everything. Bruce told the story Wednesday night of his brother-in-law who, when he was diagnosed with that he had liver cancer, and the preacher asked him, can I pray for you that God would heal you? And he says, absolutely, because you know what? I'll win either way. To be absent from the body is to be present with God. Nothing can hurt us or destroy us in this life if we're dependent on Jesus. If the world takes all of our stuff... So what? I'm laying up for myself treasures in heaven that moth and rust do not corrupt or thieves don't break and steal. They put me in jail for being obedient to the gospel. So what? Because my freedom is not of this place. I can be just as free in him if I'm surrounded by walls as I am if I'm walking through a pasture somewhere. This world can't hurt me if my focus is on the eternality of the gospel. But if I let this world enamor me with all of the stuff that it provides today, then if that's taken away from me, that hurts. 
And so our focus has to be eternal. In fact, not only is this prayer eschatological in its view, the entire book is eschatological in its view. I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is going to continue working. Romans chapter 8, he, he ends by saying, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything in all of creation shall separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The circumstances that they find themselves in don't change what their call is. We are called throughout God's Word to be His servant. Paul opens up the book by saying, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. We must keep our focus on eternity if we're to find happiness today. And you know, that's a weird, weird sort of thing. Whenever I do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, we talk about this idea a lot, that this world tells us that for you to be happy, what you have to do is go for whatever you want. You've got to, you know, YOLO, you only live once. Carpe diem, you've got to go for the gusto. You've got to get whatever you want right now, and that's what's going to make you happy. And in reality, that will leave you empty and just wanting more. But there's this weird thing that happens in a marriage. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul talks about how to make a marriage work, what he says to the, to the wife is, submit to your husband, obey him, love him. And then what he says to the husband is, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for him. So both parties are commanded to sacrificially love each other. Now, it doesn't make sense to us. We don't like that, right? I don't want somebody telling me what I've got to do. I don't want somebody telling, if I'm the wife, I don't want somebody telling me that I've got to submit. And if I'm the husband, I certainly don't want to be told that I've got to love her the way Jesus loved the church. That means that I'm sacrificing what my heart's wants and desires are so that she can be happy. So together, we're being commanded to forget ourselves and focus on the other person. How in the world is that supposed to make me happy? But the truth of the matter is, is that when we follow that, when we do that, when we sacrifice what we want for the happiness of somebody else, what we accident upon is our own happiness. We will find that as I'm focused on making somebody else feel joy, that I find my own joy. That as I'm focused on loving my husband, then I find my place. And it's that way with this. As we focus on the eternality of things, as we, our, our eyes are not on this world, our eyes are on a goal way far out there, then what we accident upon and what we find is that we have more of an impact in this world today. If we obey what the Lord has called us to do, He can use us in a way that He used Paul, in a way that He uses this church, He can use us. But if we're focused on us making ourselves happy, if we're focused on me getting what I want now, you're never going to find that joy. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day 
until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For my God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father God, Lord, we pray that your word would be applied to our heart and that we at North Linco would be both hearers and doers of your word. Lord, I pray that you forgive us for how often our focus is on this life. And so we feel angry and frustrated when it slips through our fingers. Lord, help our perspective to change, that our focus would be eternal, that we would see that the decisions we make today and tomorrow and in this life will have an impact for eternity. And that, Lord, we would lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven that moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. And, Lord, that we would invest in people who will live for all eternity, either in white-hot passion of praise through all eternity or receiving their just punishment in hell for all eternity. God, help that belief to rock our worlds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.